Communicating Effectively, a podcast designed to complement the CST 110 Communicating Effectively course at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. We are your hosts, Jess Peterson and Ashley Hannah Edwards. You can call us Professor Peterson and Dr. Edwards. Our goal is to introduce you to communication studies and to help you become a more effective communicator. Over the course of the semester, we'll be talking about dialogue, civic engagement, interpersonal communication, and public speaking. So Dr. Edwards, I consider myself an elder millennial. What would you consider yourself? I'm an elder millennial that's elder to you. Um, I've heard zennial um, for people who are like cusp of uh, Generation X early millennial, um, but I would say early millennial. Yeah, well, our examples today are going to span the lifespan of an yes. elder Gen Z millennial, but elder millennial. I still consider myself an elder millennial now to Gen Z today. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about the different models of communication. And the best way to do this is to think about it as it ties to what we already know. So we're going to start with the first model of communication, which... Do you remember when we couldn't record TV? Yes. The first TV that I remember in my house growing up had a dial, not buttons. Okay, I'm not I'm not that old. Uh, I'm a farm kid born in the 80s. So like our technology was a little dated at the time, but it had a dial. But I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons in particular, because that was the one thing my brother and I could agree on. And you would have to wait for a commercial to get up and go to the bathroom. Yeah. And you better hope that the other person didn't beat you to the bathroom because if they beat you, then you had to wait and hope that you made it in time before the television show restarted. And that's a perfect, perfect example of the action model of communication, right? Which is on page nine of your textbook. And so if you look at it, a sender encodes a message, the message is sent, sent, and the receiver decodes the message. And sometimes you have noise, right? Like my mom would sometimes call down and tell us it was time to go upstairs to eat. And so through the channel, right, our television show was sent as the message through the channel. <laughs> yeah. And, and we had to under, try to understand and decode what those cartoons were teaching us. Normally it was what's up, doc. And all of that really fits perfectly and succinctly into the action model. It really does. And, you know, just to be clear, even though we're talking about these models of communication in the um, like kind of entertainment um, sort of way, it's just because we're pop culture freaks. But um, this is true also in, you know, any other kind of conversation. It could be a dialogue between two people. And when this model was initially proposed, we really thought of communication in that way. Like one person sends a message and the other person catches it kind of like a baseball. Um, Probably the only sports reference you'll hear me make all semester, but um, that kind of like one way version and pretty quickly people started to realize like, this isn't necessarily a sufficient way of describing communication. And so the model that became popular evolved into what our book calls 
the transactional model of communication. And really the major thing that happens here is we start to acknowledge that there are two people in the conversation and that the person who receives the message might be sending another message back. So Dr. Edwards, I don't wanna to get too far ahead of you, but I think that's called the interaction model. Um, oh, you're right. But that's okay because yep. we're going to get to the transactional model. But the interaction model would probably be like a 90s baby like me, but late 2000s, right? Like right after Britney Spears, um, Kelly Clarkson just came on the scene with American Idol. And so for this example, we're going to talk about American Idol because that was really yeah. one of the first shows that I can remember. I don't know if you can remember any others where you watched and viewers were then encouraged to interact with the show by voting people off through calling in but you had to wait over like 48 hours because i think it was like tuesday to thursday to for them to tally the votes to tell you who was your american idol right and so they named it after that democratic process of electing yeah your next pop star and so there was a lot of noise that went on with that because that was at the time which people will not really remember where you could, you had to pay sometimes to call in, you had to pay for text. You only had so many. So if you ran out, you couldn't send it. Yes. In. Yeah. The context of the situation, right? Like American Idol was huge and everybody watched it. And especially like the first couple of seasons because the American viewers got to pick what happened. Yeah. Well, and um, so funny fact about American Idol, one of my close friends, Jonah, made it to the top 32 in season two, <laughs> um, which I'm guessing some of our audience wasn't alive for, but it's cool. And so I, when I think of American Idol, I think of my Hawaii friends and family. And um, in that like group of folks, like they talk a lot um, after Jonah made it to like that round. Um, there was a woman, Jasmine, who made it in season three, who was from Hawaii. And if you know anything about like island culture, especially like that particular culture, like there's like a really intense like collectivism, like community connection. And so I remember hearing a lot when I was living in Hawaii uh, about how trying it was to be an American Idol fan and to live in a time zone that was so different than the rest of the U.S. because those call-in hotlines were always at like the worst possible times for folks in Hawaii because even though it was like primetime television for those of us on the mainland for them like they were still in school they were still at work um, and so it became really inconvenient but I think that shows another element of the interaction model, uh, which is that um, it really kind of still presumes that communication is happening in a synchronous format. So like we're communicating with each other at the same time. So even though the um, message and the feedback are two separate things, we're kind of assuming those things are happening in short order, that we're taking short turns. Right, and we're able to give more feedback because if we think about the action model, if we go back in time yeah. for a second, right, like the internet really wasn't a thing. I played a lot of like Oregon Trail <laughs> on a floppy disk as a kid. But um, when you got into the early 2000s, right, computers were becoming more of a commodity for entertainment use yeah. too. And so you were able to give that feedback 
through a website to the creators of American Idol, and they were able to take that viewer feedback and apply it to the show for, you know, the seasons after season one. And so they had a few more nuances, even like shows today that still do that. They keep adapting. So they keep that viewership. And I think that that like adaptation also helps to move us from the interaction model to the like most sophisticated model, the one that we use today. Um, It's called the transactional model of communication in our book. It also is sometimes called the competent communication model or a variety of different things. But one of the major differences between the um, interactive model and the transactional model is that in the transactional model, we're no longer saying there's one sender and there's one receiver. We're really labeling both parties or even more than two parties as being the communicators. And I think that that really, that model is much more true to our experience of entertainment media today. Because even though we might have someone producing content and someone consuming content, the the exchange of messages is so much more centralized than it was, you know, when we were growing up in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, and I think a good example of this, actually, we haven't talked about, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because I think it fits really well, is when SNL did their first episode in co- during COVID in the oh. pandemic from their homes. Have you yeah, watched that? Yeah, I didn't. But the people who produce it, right, the actors became now the producers of the show as well as the producers, and so they had a kind of, change their messaging and feedback to each other simultaneously because they were doing the zoom calls they were doing all of those different technology adaptations that we have to go through now i think would be the correct term right and so the context is the world that we're in today right during the pandemic this was something that they had to do the outside noise you can even see hear it in some of their introductions and when they're filming they have families at home they have other things going on and so they constantly have that noise interrupting the message that they're trying to send out to others while getting simultaneous feedback from their producers and so you have those senders and receivers on both sides trying to create the show to send out to the masses where people can also respond in real time because it's saturday night live yeah or like when Lin-Manuel Miranda and some of the other cast members from Hamilton were like live tweeting with um, viewers at the same time that it dropped on Disney plus back in what July I mean it was like 10 years ago COVID time but I think only a few months ago in real time And I think this idea of what the language we use in computer mediated communication is a modal shift. So like when you're modality switching, like if you meet someone on Tinder and then you're moving to face to face in your interactions with that person, you know, even that it's it's accounted for in the transactional model within the channel, but we don't spend as much time talking about it classically as we should. And so I think we're going to find this semester in particular, as many of us are getting, uh, you know, like comfortable and acquainted with modal shifting. So whether you're in an online synchronous or asynchronous version of this class, or whether you're in a hybrid version where some classes in person and some classes online, or even whether you're taking a face-to-face CST 110 class, and you're also using Canvas to submit work or interact with your groups, in all of those instances, 
channel becomes this like increasingly important characteristic to consider when we're understanding how messages are being exchanged and who's sending, receiving, communicating within those models, recognizing there's different types of noise. Like y'all might hear, you know, Professor Peterson's dog Fancy or one of my um, children like running around in the background during one of these podcasts. And that would almost assuredly not happen if we were having this specific conversation face-to-face in the classroom. But so this semester, one of the things that you can expect to kind of think through and talk about is what are the different ways that the different components of these models of communication can explain or help enhance our understanding of the ways that we're communicating effectively and ineffectively in this kind of contemporary pandemic where different channels for communication are becoming more important. So as we go throughout the semester, we'll talk a lot more about things like what constitutes a message, how do we receive and give feedback, both verbally and non-verbally, what does non-verbal feedback look like on the internet, who's sending and receiving or party to these conversations, and what are the different kind of contextual factors we might need to consider, or what are the different forms of noise that we maybe wouldn't have expected to see otherwise.